I'm really proud to introduce now our friend Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is the co-author of California Crack Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It, and the other co-authors over there, Mark Paul in the first row, and the, as well as the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. He is Sokolo's California editor and is also a contributing writer for the Los Angeles Times and lead blogger at NBC's California site, Prop Zero, and otherwise a force of nature. Please welcome Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here for uh, Zocalo's maiden voyage in, in Sacramento. I, I think one day you'll be able to say, you were here. And this is what we do. We put together smart thinkers, brilliant thinkers, but who have different expertises, come from different backgrounds, perspectives, and tackle a big question. And our panel tonight is three people, all Americans, though one is also French, all of whom live in different time zones and, and have traveled widely, and, but have expertise in places as different as as Japan, China, Brussels, California, uh, American politics, Czechoslovakia, or I guess those are two countries now. Um, but I want to start, this is a tough conversation we're having tonight. It's, um, it's a politically incorrect, I think, particularly for Americans. Um, you know, in 1926, a 22-year-old a uh, uh, foreign student, Chinese student in Moscow, who had arrived after spending some time studying and working in France, wrote a class paper that said, Centralized power flows from the top down and is absolutely necessary to obey the directions from above. How much democracy can be permitted depends on the changes in the surrounding environment. Um, now that sounds quite awful um, to American ears, um, um, but tonight we want to kind of have a tough conversation about whether that author um, might have had a point. Um, he turned out to be Deng Xiaoping. Um, and he never really deviated that, from that view. Um, um, and he, and um, he may have done more than any person in the world in the past 50 years, you can make the argument, to do the kinds of things that American politicians often promise they will do in elections. Uh, to increase opportunity for people, no matter where they're from, to build the middle class, to build great public works, to advance the quality of life, to connect people uh, to the world. Um, so that's why the question tonight is, is, is democracy too slow? Um, to make rapid progress to, and to keep up with a world that moves in its finances and technology and in so many ways, uh, moves so quickly. Um, and it's a relevant question now, a question people are asking, uh, because Western democracies seem so stuck, you know, places like Europe and California. Um, you know, can we, can we govern ourselves at all in these sort of diverse democratic societies where it's so hard to, to reach agreement? Um, and there's been, you know, an idea um, in America among the leading American commentators and, and even some folks in California asking this question, um, hoping that, you know, couldn't, could, do we have something to learn from um, even authoritarian governments? Um, I'll, let me pick on Tom Friedman of the New York Times, um, who, you know, who, who recently sort of said, um, I've fantasized, don't get me wrong, but what, that, what if we could just be China for a day? I mean, just, just one day. You know, I mean, where we could actually, you know, authorize the right solutions. And I do think there is a sense of that on everything from the economy and environment. I don't want to be China for a second. Okay, I want my democracy to work with the same authority, focus, and stick-to-itiveness. So let's, um, let's start with that sort of um, premise. And I'm, let me um, start by throwing this to, um, to Ezra Vogel, um, who really should need no introduction, but let me give him a brief one. He's a... Um, 
perhaps one of our country's leading students of Japan and, and China, um, has written m more important books than I can begin to, and, and this is the latest, and it's a brilliant book. I've read it all, all 714 pages. Congratulations. Um, and and um, he's the Henry Ford Professor, Henry Ford's the second professor of the social sciences emeritus at Harvard. Um, again, this is his most recent book, Deng Xiaoping and the Transformation of China, and he's visited East Asia at least once a year since 1958 chairs the advisory board of the University Service Center in Hong Kong. So, so let's put the, the question to you. Um, is there anything that people in democracies who treasure democracy um, can really, you know, in a place, a gridlock place like California, for example, can really learn um, from the example of Deng and what's happened from China? I mean, is it just that we're electing politicians who are far too tall? Or, you know, what is it? <laughs> Well, Doug was only five feet tall, or some of you will say he was four feet 11. Uh, but uh, I think there are things we can learn. And uh, I think every country has to have its own system. We quite a lecture the Chinese that they should get democratic, and they say we're trying to interfere with them and make things tougher and make it difficult for them to keep order among the Tibetans and the, and the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. But I think the, the ideal of trying to say, what is the best for the country? And to have a group of people who are dedicated to finding what's best for the country and being able to make changes fairly rapidly without lengthy, long, long lawsuits. They've been able to put up more subway systems. They've been able to put up fast rail. Uh, they've been able to uh, <clears throat> build new factories uh, that are very geared to export-oriented, to undertake terrific long-term training programs to build up long-term. I agree with Tom Friedman. We don't want their system here. We don't want to have a, a party that dictates to us. But why isn't there room for learning from some of the best advantages, the things that they do well? Why can't we learn to have... Uh, why can't we build rapid transit systems? Why can't we have urban renewal in a faster way? Why do we have to wait so many years for lawsuits? I think Americans are creative enough, uh, and uh, we may not, may not be fast enough, but I think the world is changing. I think your questions are right on. Uh, the world is changing so fast that some of the slow ways we do things are not producing the results. And uh, I think we do have to find ways. And um, even without importing their whole system, I think the systems that they have devised for training talented people level by level in government, giving them a few years' experience, and then picking those with the best record who get along well with their superiors or their peers and their subordinates, and then giving them higher positions, and then selecting groups. Uh, there is something to be said for a lot of those qualities and a lot of those systems. But, and, and that, you know, obviously, that, that framed that way, you know, Dung is a, is a sympathetic character, but this was a, also a guy who, I mean, he, you know, you talk in the book about two things that are sort of inviolate. He was gonna modernize and, and really catch China up with the world after just horrors and terrors and, you know, unmanageable loss of life. I mean, there's an important context there. Um, but also that he, he thought it was, you know, it was, it was sort of non-negotiable to the point where, you know, he was willing to set troops on his own citizens, that the Chinese Communist Party, this one-party rule, um, you know, was the, was the way there. And I, get, I know this is the kind of question that historians hate, but, you know, 
Was he right about that? Could you have modernized, you know, in a more pluralistic way? I don't think he could have. I, I think we tend to think about other countries based on our own experience. And our own experience is that we can have democracy and different point of views. Uh, I remember during the Vietnamese uh, war, uh, being in Washington as part of some of those demonstrations. I don't remember uh, people in Washington being worried that they, they were gonna, we were going to overthrow the government just because we opposed the government in Vietnam. But in China, they really have to worry. And uh, over 30 million people were killed during the Cultural Revolution, uh, during the, the uh, Great Leap Forward. At least 1.4 million were killed during the Cultural Revolution. Um, there are various estimates of how many people were killed in the Tiananmen incident, but I think the best figures that a Canadian scholar has done through very careful work, maybe seven, eight hundred. Um, and Dung felt that for the good of the country, thinking the long-term good of the country, that you had to bring the city in order. And I think at that particular time, he was probably right. Uh, and uh, it's easy to give advice based on our experience for democracy, but when you're in a country that's much more turmoil, uh, that advice is often not appropriate. Uh, <clears throat> as somebody who's looked at East Asia modernization, the truth is every country that broke through modernization did it under authoritarian governments. That was true in Japan, it was true in Korea, uh, it was true in Singapore, uh, and it's been true in China. And uh, the two countries that we held up as the great advances, the great uh, democratic countries of Asia, Philippines and India, uh, have been the, among the slowest. And people say corruption in the Philippines is perhaps as bad as it is in China, and yet they've had democracy. So I think the simple solutions that we have suggested in democracy in these other countries is not always the way to, to get things done. Well, with that, let me, um, let's turn to Europe and to um, Janice Thompson, immediately to my right. Um, um, Janice has uh, uh, spent the last six years uh, in Brussels. She escaped its um, <laughs> difficult politics uh, and relocated to the, the tame, um, practically apolitical town of Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> um, and you did a lot of different kinds of works in nonprofits, and you're also a writer, um, and have written things for a publication I recommend to anyone who does civic engagement and participation work, but is unknown here, called Involve, um, based, in, uh, based in the UK. Um, and you focused on understanding public participation in the European Union, your public engagement advisor, you worked on this new uh, initiative process that the Europeans have just started last month. Um, now, a lot of us look at Europe and, you, and we think, you know, this is a place with too many countries, and one of them is Greece. <laughs> they're, they're all democracies, many interested languages. You know, they can't resolve this Euro crisis. They keep mm -hmm. half resolving over and over again. Perhaps this is a place where a firmer hand, uh, more unity is needed. Is that right? Oh, not at all. <laughs> um, this whole question about speed and democracy is really important, especially right now in the EU. And it's... When I look at it, I look at the question of the EU as an example of transnational government. And the only transnational government in world history that's been both powerful and aspires to be democratic is the EU. And this transnational level is more important to citizens now than ever. Because if you look at uh, uh, business and capital, they're global and borderless. They can move around easily. But citizens are stuck in one place. 
and most citizens are represented by a national or local or regional government. So it's really easy for businesses to pit country versus country in, um, in order to get more friendly legislation. So if citizens' interests are to be defended, national governments really need to bond together in a way that's very democratic. And the EU has really been a test case is as to whether this is possible and what the results will be. And the results actually have been quite mixed. But in general, where the EU has used democratic decision-making, the end results, the end laws, are much more protective of citizen interests and environmental interests than anything that has come out of any sort of international organization or treaty using diplomatic methods. And then, because the EU is so large, it's any laws that relate to consumer goods that affects people around the world, including Americans. Now, on the surface, decision-making in the EU is extraordinarily slow and mind-bogglingly complex. It can easily take five years to develop new EU law. But in another sense, it's actually incredibly fast and very efficient and results in high-quality policy because you're changing laws in 27 countries at one time, rather than changing them in 27 countries individually. And also, the country that's least advanced in, uh, in a policy area benefits from the knowledge of a country that's more advanced. So the overall average quality is much better. And then if a new member state joins the EU, it has to bring all of its laws up to date, up to the same EU standards. So that results in very rapid um, improvement in the quality and efficiency of um, laws. No, so the democracy itself is not too slow for transnational government, but there is a problem with democracy in the EU, which is the EU is inadequately in a, in democratic. The democratization, the process of making the EU democratic has been very slow. It's been related to the degree of integration, and this is what's causing the big problems right now. It's left the EU very vulnerable to the financial crisis. So you hear things like, the euro crisis, that the EU democracy is too slow and that some aspects of democracy need to be put aside for a while to save the euro. And that's both incredibly misleading and also very dangerous. And it's misleading in the sense that there's actually two different ways that decisions are made in the EU. There's the regular legislative procedure that is relatively transparent and democratic. It's where the directly elected European Parliament decides with the Council which represents the member state governments. And there's another method, which is intergovernmental, which is not very transparent, and it's not very democratic in the sense that the European <coughs> Parliament doesn't have much say. And the policies that needed to be changed to defend the euro are within this intergovernmental area. So it's not that EU democracy is too slow, the EU was, didn't have the democratic infrastructure to solve these euro problems. And this is where it becomes very dangerous, and this is very important, is when you look at the role of the citizen in the EU. What citizens know and what they can influence. And most EU citizens have no idea how the EU functions. It is this giant black box that sits somewhere in Brussels or in Strasbourg that policy somehow comes out of. Most citizens think the European Parliament is the most powerful institution when, in fact, it's the Council. And this is really interesting thinking about China in that it's been in the interest of the national leaders to keep people in the dark. In the very beginning of the European Economic Community, this was justified. It was a very risky enterprise. It could be derailed very easily. But the, what happened is it then became very convenient for the national leaders to keep the citizens in the dark. 
which allowed them to just blame Brussels for imposing policies that they, in fact, approved. Now, even if you do know what's going on in the EU, there's very few opportunities for the citizens to influence what's happening. Um, and we know in other contexts that if citizens have a chance of impacting policy, even if they don't actually use it, they're more likely to support the final policy even if they don't agree with it. So if they're excluded from the process, that creates even more problems. And um, so you see right now in the EU, these austerity measures being imposed in very undemocratic ways are overshadowing all the good policy that has come out of more democratic processes. And what the citizens can do is they can vote. They can vote in national elections and they can vote for members of European Parliament. And you see the rise all over Europe and extreme right-wing parties and extreme left-wing parties that are either overtly anti-EU or have a very different vision for the EU. And at the same time, ironically, European elites are saying now's the time for complete political integration with more democratization, but there's no grassroots citizens' movements to back that up because and citizens have been real, kept... Democratization means this, this science, real European elections where you vote European-wide on questions or there's a lot. candidates rather than just yeah. in your nation for people to go there. Well, there's lots of aspects to improving the democratization of the EU. One of the big weaknesses is the European... Uh, commission, which is basically the executive branch, which is, has the sole right of initiative, they set the agenda, is not elected. It's not elected, it's not accountable. So one of the first big democratic changes would be a directly elected commission president. Also, European elections are not run on European issues, and there was actually recently um, a proposal to change uh, the way the elections are run to create transnational party lists. So you have different parties that could compete one versus another for an image of, on a different um, vision of Europe. And those were, that was completely defeated in the European Parliament. And there's a lot more that can happen, but well, I'll We're going to get more to it, but that's an interesting a perspective of, you know, there, there's maybe more democracy needed that, uh, mm -hmm. with the commission. Let's, um, let's bring this home to reality. California, San Francisco, um, and um, uh, my, my, uh, our third panelist is, um, again, doesn't need much introduction, but I'm going to give her one. She's an attorney, author, and activist. Christine Pelosi has literally been in, around politics and public policy, working in it her entire life. Um, she serves as board member of the, for the Young Democrats for America. She conducts these incredible leadership boot camps for candidates and nonprofits not just across the country in 30 states, but actually in a couple of foreign countries in Eastern Europe. Um, she teaches the Public Service Leadership Boot Camp for UC Berkeley Extension in San Francisco. And this, um, this is actually her the second book, right? There's, there's this campaign boot camp and this campaign boot camp uh, 2.0. Um, if you're thinking of running for office, have your head examined. If the examination is okay, buy this book. Um, so let's, you know, let's, puts this question. In, in your book, in your book, and to sort of to respond to these folks, um, you know, you give some, and you're talking about the beehive model politics, all these different, you know, sort of networks and, and this is almost a social network, you know, method of politics, and, and you advise people who are running for office, quote, there are no more filters or layers that buffer them from public opinion. Today's leaders have to adapt to this new reality. Prepare to lose control and listen to the wisdom of, of crowds. Now, you know, from a, the Deng Xiaoping perspective, isn't that, the, isn't that the problem? How does that get us anywhere, you know, listening to the wisdom of the crowds? Isn't the crowd in, in conflict in, in ways that, that is precisely make, make it so hard to govern? 
Thank you for the question, and thank you, Zocalo and Cal Humanities. As Joe mentioned, I started in politics when I was in the stroller. So when we were growing up, um, first in New York City, my mom had three kids, three and under, all in the same little stroller, pushing us through um, the streets of New York City. And when I was writing my book, um, first book, and I said, Mom, how did you get in past all those no soliciting signs? And she said, who was going to refuse a woman with three babies in a stroller? So we knew she was driven, but we never would have imagined 40 years ago that she would, 40 years later, become the first woman speaker of the House of Representatives. 3,000 miles away, um, 30 years, you know, 40 years later. Um, and the answer is that politics isn't the great leap to power, not an American democracy. You can't just be picked by the party and groomed and get there. Um, it's about the steps that you take with your neighbors along the way. Now, the reason I have my device here is when my mom was born, she was born in Baltimore. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Huns of Baltimore, but they all have beehives. And so that was the 20th century. They all had the beehive. It was a hairdo. Now the beehive is the social model that Joe mentioned. A blackberry was a fruit. Now it's a tool for change. It's a tool for the wisdom of crowds. And in politics, when you look at American politics, you look at most nonprofits, about 80% of your volunteer workforce is going to be over 65 or under 30. So when you look, think about your volunteers, right? Because everybody else is presumably working. And so, therefore, you have to figure out a way to bring those cultures together. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with American democracy that can't be cured by more democracy, by taking money out of politics, repealing Citizens United, when I say special interest money that can completely weigh down the scales. We're here in the Crocker Museum. Well, the Crockers in their day were the Kochs and the Kennedys of yesteryear. And if you read about um, the associates who built the railroads and the, the forced labor, Chinese labor as a matter of fact, the forced labor that, that built the railroads, um, there was a way to get things done. It wasn't very democratic, but it got done. Slave labor, um, one man, one vote, one white man, one vote, very little room for individual freedom, very little room for what we think of as democracy. So though we had an American republic with a beautiful call to service from our founders, we didn't have a practicing democracy until, I would argue, um, closer to the 20th and 21st centuries. So when you look at uh, the Crockers of today, you can really take two choices. You can go the Koch route or the Kennedy route. The Koch brothers route, where you are basically working as the men behind the curtain, who are funding various and sundry activities that are being played out by others, or the Kennedy route, where you're the men and women in front of the curtain, running for office or working uh, in a, in a uh, nonprofit setting, like Carrie Kennedy's doing uh, with the RFK Center, sticking up for human rights, including in China. And that's the one missing thread, is the value of the individual. If you look at what's happening with the Chen case, um, that exploded just as we were preparing our remarks and presentations for today, where you have a dissident in China who um, manages somehow to get into the US embassy, and all of a sudden, all over Twitter, we know what happened. We have to say it in certain ways because um, you can't say things like uh, his name on the Twitter in China without getting in, in deep trouble. And of course, you even have very pro-choice liberal Americans standing up for him even though what he's fighting against is forced abortion. 
So it's a very interesting, eclectic, democratic group of supporters behind this man who are trying to find a solution for him. That wouldn't be possible without the technology, the new BlackBerry and the new Beehive. So I think when we look at democracy and we look at uh, the power of the individual, the best parts about American democracy are, as was mentioned in the Europe context, Everybody does get a vote. You do have an opportunity to get out and vote. You do have an opportunity to get out and run. You do have an opportunity now to form coalitions and make change. We're on the verge of our fourth straight change election. In 2005, when we started doing candidate boot camps, we were looking for 45 people to help run for office. I was working with AFSCME, a public service labor union, and we were saying, Washington will try to find 15 Republicans to fire so the Democrats can win the House. But we're going to look to 45 people to hire, mostly people who are not from politics. So I'm sort of a cultural interpreter, sort of a child of people in politics who can translate uh, that alphabet soup, that strange activity of going to the Safeway on the Saturday mornings and standing outside to register voters rather than going inside to shop and say, this is what drives people who are active in pol public policy. This is why it's important to believe in what you're doing. And only American democracy allows someone like a Barack Obama, the son of a Kansan and a Kenyan, to make his way, find himself, and really burst on the national scene and become president of the United States. I don't think that could happen absent a democracy. I don't think it could happen anywhere but in America. Let me, follow, I want to follow up on that and, and, and ask you to both the sort of get into what you do in training and, and something that Ezra mentioned about the sort of the merit of the Chinese system. Now, I, I mean, please don't take this because I am from Los Angeles, and this is, this is a compliment, not an insult to the city of San Francisco. But, you know, San Francisco punches in California politics much higher than its weight. You know, I mean, look at, you know, the Bay Area. I mean, look at, you know, look at where our governor's from, our lieutenant governor's from, our attorney general's from. Look at, you know, the, the backgrounds of our United States senators. Look, you know, your mom. You know, and, and you ask, why is San Francisco producing way more than its share of leaders compared to, you know, my hometown? Um, and the answer I'm told is, well, you know, there was this guy, Phil Burton, and, and they had this incredibly intense, competitive political culture that really train people and, and was a, a testing ground and still lingers. It's a, it's a much more politically competitive place. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not unlike China. It's a one-party kind of state, right? Um, but yet it's, it's punching its weight. I mean, is there something to that? Is there something to that kind of, that kind of kiln in which you fire that you're just going to kind of get better people? Is that maybe sort of what we, what we need that, that too much of our country doesn't have? I think the only predictor of campaigning is campaigning. In San Francisco, we're very dense, we're very small, 700,000 people plus, um, probably closer to eight if we had a full count in the census, which is a whole other Socolo evening. But um, ride the muni through <laughs> certain districts, you know it's higher than what they say it is. But it's very, very, we've got Every cross-section you can think of, we speak you know, dozens, of, you know, dozens of languages, dozens of cultures, people coming in from all over, and it is highly, highly competitive for everything. And so I think that the competition really makes people very, very, very strong. The other thing about San Francisco is that we get to vote on everything. We have an initiative process. We, have, um, we were the city that sued to say that our 
Party central committees could endorse in nonpartisan elections like mayor and city supervisor, which again, politicized. And by the way, that wasn't Phil Burton. He didn't want them to be able to do that. <laughs> little fear of the grassroots there. But it happened um, in a lawsuit that, that really changed the nature of, of, of our politics. So I think the combination of incredible diversity, incredible competition, and incredible opportunity to, we were part of the tech boom. We were part of, we have, we have several pillars in our community. Great sports teams, great arts, great tech, a lot of history, um, a lot of museums, a lot of communities um, who come together and say, well, not only are we going to have, um, have, take pride in our diversity, we're also gonna have our own museum, our own ballet, or our own symphony, our own um, individual and yet collective um, works of art. My husband, Peter Kaufman, and his dad, Phil, um, make movies in San Francisco. Uh, they're very lucky to be able to do that. And one of the things is that you can go to San Francisco. They just did a movie, Hemingway and Gellhorn. They did China, New York, Spain, Cuba, Finland, all without leaving um, a 30-mile radius of the city and county of San Francisco. So I think the fact that we're so diverse leads us to the kind of political calculations and the, uh, that, that can't be transactional, because everyone can see right through it. There's thousands of transactional politicians walking the streets of San Francisco. You really are forced to be transformational. You have to up your game in order to succeed in my town. And I think because we have to do that locally, it's easier for us than to be able to do that on a state or national scale versus a lot of people, if they're coming up through a political farm system, it's not till they get to the Senate. It's not till they get to the Congress that the, they have to start dealing with the kinds of complex and diverse uh, decisions and constituencies that we balance on a daily basis when we decide to vote for Democratic Party Central Committee or, or City Council. That's what you wanted to jump in, yeah. I do want to jump in. <laughs> I think there are several things that uh, if you try to look at China, it doesn't, it, it doesn't quite fit. First of all, uh, they don't have slave labor. Uh, when people choose to go to the coast to work in factories, they choose themselves. So what they, what they have done is they've imported factories uh, and they've set it up. And the reason people go there, sometimes they do work long hours. Uh, it's because it's a hell of a lot better than the starvation that they were doing out in the countryside. So I, I don't think that's a good description. And I, I think for what's worked in China, that just turning things over to the masses uh, and having big demonstration is not what's brought the progress. The progress has come because people have systematically tried to think of new factories, new roads, new power stations, uh, and think through logically what are the kind of things that they can do for international uh, projects and international export. Uh, and uh, if you think of some of the things that's happened in our country, uh, that say what we have is sort of stockholders democracy. The big companies are supposed to look out for the stockholders. If they don't look out for the employees, they look out for the stockholders. So the question is making money rather than looking out for the lives of the people who work in those companies. <clears throat> and I think that in Japan, very often we say those dumb companies, they don't, they, they, uh, they're barely making money, they're not profitable, uh, and they're keeping on their old employees. I don't, think, I don't think that's a disaster. I, th I think that there are a lot of things that we could do better that would be more humane, more for the working people, 
and in the long run would represent the interests of more people than the way things turn out in that, this country. Look, look what's happened, you know, in sort of the Wall Street, the kind of things that have happened, the, the indecent salaries that have been paid to people while other people are being laid off. It seems to me there's something wrong with that system. So let, let, me, let me throw, a, a, for the whole panel, a, a question out. Um, you know, every time I write something about what should be done in California, I get a call from somebody in Sacramento who quotes polling to me about how what I suggest can't possibly ever happen. So let me throw a, a, a poll at, this, at the room full of Sacramentans, uh, a little bit of revenge. Um, the Pew Research Center in 2011 asked citizens of, of countries around the world um, whether they were satisfied with the direction of, that their country was going in. Um, the European countries were sort of tended to be in the middle, around 50. The, um, the United States, 21%. And by far the leader, by more than 20 points over anybody else, was the Chinese at 85%. Um, I mean, do we not like democracy or, or what it gives us? Um, the folks with the authoritarian regime seem to have a government with, you know, much greater authentic popular support. How do we reckon with that? I think, I think in China... Uh, I would question some of those polls. I think, I think <laughs> that, that I, I, you know, I think one has to uh, acknowledge that. Uh, but I think it, it is generally true that there, you know, if the Chinese looking what's happened in the last 20 years, and they say, have your opportunities improved? Are you living a better life? Are you more hopeful about your children? They've delivered. They, they've, they, and I think there is a very considerable truth to that. And I think they've, they found, I wouldn't argue that every centralized authority could do that, but the particular authority that they have has basically brought good for more, ch more people than it's brought problems. I have, yeah, I have a, a response to that. Um, citizens have changed a lot. People have changed a lot over time. And I think the Chinese are starting from a different place than people in Europe or other um, affluent democracies. A lot of, look at Europeans, a lot of Europeans are actually very well educated, as, as well as Americans, very individualistic and very demanding. So they have very high expectations, and they're also very distrustful of their politicians. So it's harder for politicians to meet the, the high demands of modern um, citizens in affluent countries than in a country like China. So you have to really look at who are the citizens and where have they come from and where are they now. I also think you have to look at people's comfort level with their own hypocrisies. I mean, every time the field poll uh, PPIC does a poll out in California, will say, we want services and we don't want to raise taxes to pay for them. And voters are relatively comfortable with that um, hypocrisy within ourselves because we keep saying, I say we collectively, majority of people continue to say that. I think that there are a couple of things though, stepping back where, that you could do and you could probably only do through a democratic movement to change that. For example, I was giving a talk at UC Berkeley and a couple of the kids were walking to my car and they said, we're gonna graduate with $100,000 in loan debt, public university. I said, well, what are you taking and how long are you planning on being here? And they said, four years, $100,000. So something is wrong when a public education, the backbone of our country, the backbone of our competitiveness with China, um, is, 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 is literally bankrupting families. What you could do is say, well, if we had a billion dollar bailout and a billion dollar economic recovery act, why don't you have a, um, 
why don't you have a system where you'd have a trillion dollar loan forgiveness, but make everybody work? Say, you have a federal student loan, you can pay it off through national service, either be in the military or be in civilian service and pay it off. Right now they have a small program that you can do through OPM, uh, Office of Personnel uh, Management, has a small program for the federal government, but what if you did a moonshot and just say, we have a trillion dollars in debt, Here's one way where the government could absorb it. Rather than being the lender of last resort, we could be the employer of last resort and put all these people to work so that we could compete. It would be in our natural, national interest. And that's a better trillion dollar expenditure than say, for example, a war in Iraq. So you could have a big movement if you wanted to do that, if you wanted to elect people on that, that probably only a grassroots movement could resolve. Right now, we can't even resolve nibbling at the edges over student loan debt interest rates going up because there's a discussion about whether you should either make rich people pay that or you should make, um, you, you should raid Obamacare and health preventive services in order to pay that. And that's over just six, uh, billion, just $6 billion, never mind the whole trillion. So I think you have to think in big ways and a democracy would allow you to do that. And if you had a couple of very big ideas in states like California where you said, okay, for our California state universities, it's gonna be free tuition, but you have to work for the state in some way and serve in some way, you might get support for that. And by the way, educate your kids. Let me, let me um, talk about California just a second, because there's, um, there's, you know, the Christmas in California, it's impossible to be big, we have this, you know, crazy system. People have written books about it. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, there, was these, there were these guys, this strange billionaire guy, homeless billionaire named Nicholas Bergruen, who marched in to the state and came up, big high-powered committee, and, and one of his, the big recommendations, this Think Long Committee for California, was a 13-member council that was supposed to be sort of separated from politics and and would think of the long term, and I dismissed it. It was, you know, this, it looked like the Jedi Council in the Star Wars movies. <laughs> but, you know, when you talk to them, to Berger, and he sort of, you know, says the problem is that we've sort of married democracy to consumerism in the United mm. States. And that, you know, we, and that consumerism is by its very nature this sort of very short term thing. And that, you know, we become these kinds of citizens where, you know, we, we just want, we want consumption without savings or education, infrastructure, and social security without taxes, sort of all this stuff. And that we need, less, we need structures within our democracy that are less democratic so that we can do those kinds of big, long-term, you know, kind of moves and investments. But that's only if the people want it. I mean, we passed high-speed rail here. Right. Now, you were asking before, as we were saying, well, why don't we have high-speed rail here the way they do in China? Well, the answer is, here, you're realistically only going to get it on a national scale. We're only going to get, for example, a transportation bill passed if they say, okay, the high-speed rail is going to start, rather than being as, as pervasive as the Transcontinental Railroad, it's going to have to start at high-density population centers where people have supported it and then slowly build out and... And, and interconnect. Look at California where we passed high-speed rail and we're still having, what did they do? They said you have to build the least populated area first or the whole thing collapses. So they, they knew that what Joe is saying is true, which is why when they, they, they crafted the measure, they say you have to start at the place where you have the least amount of political will because that's the only way to get you stretching then uh, up and down the coast from the Central Valley. So I do think that we are that way, but it doesn't mean that we can't find creative ways to create consensus um, in order to do that. 
But again, you have to take some of the big money out of politics first because some 25-year-old kid staffing a congressman or congresswoman on transportation issues for $30,000 a year is not going to be able to compete with a multi-million dollar lobbying effort that's going to come out at that member of Congress on a particular transportation issue. It's just absolutely not going to be a fair fight unless you take some of that money away and make that. And by the way, have more of those 20-something kids who are serving the country and, and trying to make sense of this stuff for their bosses. Gina, see if you can get in here. Yeah, actually, I had a different question, but you, I actually wanted to talk yeah. about this whole point of view of citizens as consumers in the United States. And I'm originally American, and then I went to Europe and learned about Europe from the ground up. And I actually used to have this attitude, I didn't realize how American this was, that <laughs> citizens... Um, that governments are like providers of good services to citizens so that, um, the, I'm trying, I, I'm not articulating this very well, but I used to think of like, um, if only the governments better understood citizens' needs, they would serve them better. And working in Europe, I completely changed the way I thought about what the role of the citizen is. It's not, a citizen is not a consumer. A citizen is somebody who also produces policy that is part of the solution, not just the person who asks the government um, for a good product. So this is actually something that's talked about a lot in Europe right now, not necessarily in the EU, but in Europe as government as a facilitator, not a government as a provider of services, but government of a, as a facilitator of citizens in different groups coming up with services. So. Um, I don't know if that's clear, but um, just that I realized how pervasive this whole marketing thinking is in government in the United States, and that is not true in Europe, where citizens are citizens with responsibilities and not just needs. Is, is the difficulty in governing all these places, I mean, you know, California, China, the European Union, I mean, one of those things, those places are all really big. Right? I mean, and big places are very difficult to govern. Um, you know, there's a colleague of yours, I'm not sure you've ever met him, on the Harvard faculty, uh, an economics professor, Alberto Alcina, who has this research about the size of nations and says the ideal kind of nation size, if you want to be successful economically and be really democratic, is like between six and eight million. So all these places are way out of, out of scale. Is, is that an issue? Is it, is it, is it, is it possible, is it, is it too hard to govern both effectively and democratically in a place that's really big? I mean, the United States is 300 million now. We were 76 million a century ago, and, it, and, and we, you know, is, is that sort of a factor that we're missing? Seems to me we have to have a change of consciousness. I mean, something like the high-speed rail. You know, say, in Massachusetts, Mike Dukakis has been talking about this for 50 years. That's right and hasn't got it done. And I think it's that uh, somehow the people don't realize that to, to do some things that are really going to benefit everybody, we're going to have to figure out a way and work together to do it. And um, <clears throat> I think the, the structure of lobby and big business and so forth makes it very difficult. But I think that now the world is changing so fast. I think, I think the, the point that Joe is making, that we're in a very big changing world and things are changing fast, is going to, if we're going to do it democratically, we're going to have to learn a lot more and understand and have a higher level of consciousness about some of the choices we have to make in order to get things done. And um, a group like this could play a role 
in helping increase the understanding of the things that need to be done in order to, to really look out for the good of the country as a whole. And you have to, I think, put technology in with that. It's very hard to do nuance in 140 characters. And if you look at you know, how you're going to get attention on a Twitter or Facebook or you know, a soundbite, it's a very short um, distillation of a message. And people only have time for a certain amount of information. So being, that, I think, puts a lot of pressure on government. Certainly does on American democracy because people think that they know something. You know, they, the old expression, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Um, especially when you think you know, so you stop learning. We have a couple of <coughs> issues there. You've got people who are siloed in various um, media based on their philosophy. So I, I'm, I think, in a small fraction of people that actually reads across the spectrum because I want to know what my side is thinking, what the other side is thinking, what, who's thinking things in the middle, what the alternative voices are, but most people don't have time for that. They read the web, a couple of websites, they follow a few Twitter feeds, they, have, they think they have enough information, and they're fine with that. But I think governments have to be rewired for that and rewired for change because right now it's not only size, but it's also flexibility. We're just not nimble. Quick example, after 9-11, I was working on Capitol Hill as the chief of staff to a congressman who was on the, the government oversight committee. So the responsibility was to create a Department of Homeland Security. And the big debate um, was, do you take Tom Ridge and basically give him budget power? Because if you don't have budget power in the federal government, you have nothing. You give him budget power over other agencies, but basically make it a very nimble, yet cabinet level, budget powerful position, or do you do what they ended up doing, which is to take 22 different agencies with different cultures and merge them all together and give them a common mission. Now, my argument would be is that the war on terror would have been fought a lot differently if it had been built the first way. And if you look on the, at the war on cyber um, terrorism now, it's being built much more like that smaller, uh, nimbler model. So, because we have learned that you just don't have time to drag 22 agencies kicking and screaming, um, like building a U in the EU to solve a national security crisis. We, we have to go to questions and Q&A, we'll, but I have to ask Ezra one direct question, because since I read it, it was such a chilling scene in your book that I, I, I got to ask you. There's this page in May of, there's a scene you do in May of 1989. Um, late May of 1989, the students are in the square, people have blocked the first attempt to, by troops to get folks out, um, and, and there's a meeting where Dung gives the order he's going to send in the troops, and there's one dissenter in the room famously, and, and, but there's a concern raised by several people that says, how will foreigners react? And Dung replies, you know, we need action, and quote, the Westerners will forget. Was he right? Uh, we imposed sanctions, and he said at the time, uh, our market is so big, foreign businessmen will want to come back and they'll convince their own governments within several years uh, that they'll need to come back into the Chinese market. And I think he turned out basically to be right. He may have underestimated the problem of the military procurement, because we did really stop military procurement and that has left the militaries of the two countries uh, at a very distant edge that they're only beginning now to overcome. But I think, I think uh, he was right. I mean, we did, we did want to get back into their market, and within a few years, the sanctions, we forgot about the sanctions, 
and it turned out that he had a longer perspective on history uh, than we did at the time. Thank you. What do you think uh, uh, Americans or democracies to work have to want and, and have to be able to inspire uh, people who live in those democracies to, uh, to be willing to share the cost of and the production of. And we certainly saw this in the healthcare debate. My favorite sign was the one that said, get your government hands off my Medicare. <laughs> and um, so it, it is a fallacy that it's a smaller government, actually, because during the time, you know, that, that the Norquist um, pledging was going on, we're not gonna pledge um, to have any new spending, they had plenty of unpaid for tax cut spending. So government is large, it's just a matter of what you happen to be getting. I think that there's a couple of things. If you're in a completely autocratic society or a completely corporate society, you do have those decisions that are being made for you about healthcare. You just get a certain amount and then that's all you get. You don't, you know, remember the whole argument about the death panels and people said, oh, they're gonna be government bureaucrats and other people said, no, we already have them, they're called insurance companies. And but both sides were fighting over was this issue of it's, one, it's all well and good to say that we as a society need to limit end-of-life care, otherwise we're going to bankrupt the system, but no one wants to say that if it's their grandmother. So part of, it, it, of having rights and responsibilities as citizens is to be able, again, as I said before, to be comfortable in that hypocrisy and saying, I realize that actually I, I would want to be in a situation where if I'm at the end of life and I can justify that care because it might keep me alive or it might help others through science, I want the government to keep paying for that. Well, if that's what we're saying, it's gonna be a very, very expensive proposition. So marrying um, cost and consumer benefit is, is always gonna be tough. So I think in a democracy, people, you know, again, it, it, it changes every election cycle, which is the beauty or the, the curse of it. But I do think that people have to be honest about the cost of their choices and upfront with saying, no, actually, I do want that benefit. I do want that social security benefit. I do want more health care at the end of my life. And um, then go out and fight for that. And if you win, then you get it. And if you lose the election, you don't get it. But the deciders are the American people or the republic um, itself and the elected officials that we choose. You want to get say, in, Janet? Yeah, I want to say one of the things that citizens really need to know for the democracies to function well is they need to be well informed. They need to know what the facts are. They need to know what's happening and they need to be able to debate openly these topics. And this is one of the weaknesses of democracy in the EU, which is the same thing that you see in the United States, which is a is a decline of um, journalism, a de decline of, for financial reasons. A lot of uh, newspapers are going out of business and the EU isn't even covered very well. So people don't even have a chance to know what's going on. So at the very base, you need to have a free press, you need to have a functioning press, you need to have um, opportunities for people to discuss and really look at the facts and not just be, this is what I want, but understand the big picture and, and what are the trade-offs and what else is going on. So I have a plug for the, the press. <laughs> the American political system gives a guise of democracy that uh, money, media, and election laws basically prove that representative government doesn't exist. Uh, and, and there's a whole slew of things that are uh, we're, we keep narrowing our democratic process. Uh, in California, Prop 14 just passed, for example, 
which is going to reduce people's choices to only two in the general election instead of the six or seven that they have now. So how can we in, instill the idea back in people's minds that you know, we do want to have a democratic society and that uh, we're moving towards authoritarianism, and I think that's the wrong way to go. In June of 2010, we made some interesting choices. You had two very wealthy people who won Republican nominations, Meg Whitman and Carly Fiorina. Clearly, the money talked in both of those statewide primaries for Republican governor and Republican Senate nominee. On the other hand, you also had PG&E that spent $45 million of ratepayer money trying to take away consumer choices, and they lost to a group of people who had maybe a million dollars at most, and, and Mercury Insurance, who put up $18 million of, um, of premium uh, money, and they lost, again, to sort of a ragtag uh, opposition because people had to stand by their ad and because you saw a commercial and if it was paid for by a big utility or a big insurance company and they said they were going to change your life for the better, voters were naturally skeptical. So I think that the more disclosure that you have, the more sunshine sunlight that you let in, it does allow voters to become informed. Now, no voter is going to say, I don't know what I'm voting on. No one's going to say that and insulting voters by saying, well, I just don't think that you knew what you meant. No, I know what I meant. But you could expand the information that appears before the voters and require people to do that. And if you do, you do end up, I think, in a situation that's closer to the PG&E example where uh, they turn back a utility in that context. Well, normally, a lot of times what people do in those kind of systems is they vote with their heart in the first round, and then they vote strategically in the, with their head in the, in the second round. Um, it can be very risky. You saw what happened in the, I think it was the 2002 or 2004 round of the first French presidential elections where the main um, socialist party candidates' vote was split among splinter groups, and you ended up with a runoff of the Front National, the extreme right wing, and Jacques Chirac. So it can, it can backfire you can end up with the second round with the absolute worst choice you could possibly have. Uh, we've grown accustomed to think of China as being completely undemocratic, but um, I just found out that every 10 years, the leadership in China, the Central Committee, changes. And I find that very democratic, actually, and it's a difference from the centralized governments where the leader just stays there until he's dead. How do you think uh, that affects China's uh, advancement. Well, Deng Xiaoping, when he came to power, uh, he said that we have to change, and he wanted to leave the country with terms of office, and they did. And uh, they do have, a, it's a kind of a merit, I wouldn't say democratic, but it is a certain effort to be meritocratic. It, in some ways, it's like a company that tries to get the best people they can and to go over their resume uh, and to come up step by step. So now <clears throat> where you have nine people being selected for the standing committee of the Politburo, uh, the membership is being drawn from those who've already had experience at the lower end, and the selection among those top people is by the very top people for the next layer of people. I think on the one hand, uh, the system has worked to bring very talented people to the top. On the other hand, you know, you go back to the old Plato question, who is to guard the guardians? Mm -hmm. And the danger in that kind of system is that there would not be enough fresh air from the outside 
and that these people stuff their own pockets, uh, and that there isn't enough check on that. And I think they, it's not a perfect system, and perhaps uh, mankind has not invented a perfect system. <laughs> I think that it, it, the system that they have has brought enormous progress to China, and they feel that the problems of the country are so immense that having those talented, experienced people make those decisions is better than just throw it open for voting among people who really wouldn't understand the depth of the problems. About 80 years ago, a boy who grew up here in Sacramento in a house very much like this one went off to the Soviet Union and came back and said, I have seen the future and it works. Um, and we have heard over and over, uh, over the last you know, 80, 100 years in the United States, people going off other places. In the, in the 80s, it was Japan, I believe. Professor Vogel was one of them. Uh, and now it's China. All the time, people talking about these other places that, that are supposed to be models for the United States. And yet, when we talk about you know, the things that are speeding up the world, you know, technology, finance, all the rest, they're all Ameri things that happen here in America. Why do we, we Americans are down on ourselves so much um, uh, all the time? Why is, what is it about being American that allows us to underrate what it is that we do in the world? I don't see it that way. I, I think that America is large and diverse enough that we have a lot of people who are very proud of what we're doing uh, and say very good things about America. A lot of us uh, who are academics, I think we th see things are complicated. We see some good things that work well and some other things that don't work. Uh, my own view as somebody who's spent uh, my professional life trying to study Asia is that there are a lot of things that uh, Asians do well and there's room for us to learn from those examples. And uh, I, for one, uh, have never thought of uh, Japan and China as the future that works for us. But I do think that there are a lot of things that they've done. When I was writing about Japan, 30 years ago, I was not arguing that they were going to be the richest country. I was arguing, for example, that in primary school education, the overall level of understanding and quality in their primary schools is a hell of a lot better than ours. Why can't we learn to improve our own system to do that better? Uh, and uh, they have developed a system where they have longevity. Uh, the average length of life in Japan is longer than ours. They have universal medical coverage, uh, and they do it a hell of a lot cheaper than we do. Uh, why can't we learn from that? Uh, and I feel the same way about China, that uh, their, our experiences are very different, but there's some things that they've done quite well. And, and aren't we smart enough and confident enough that we can say we love our system, we love our people, we want to keep it basically the way it is, but there's still a lot of things that we learn from the outside. I also think that because we're a nation of immigrants and we're constantly invigorated by people who are coming from different places, they're naturally going to bring their own experiences um, to the United States and that will have, that has an impact on um, our politics. Also, as a practical matter, um, to your point about inventions, you, you talk to people about why the, the, your technology says designed in California, assembled in China or made in China, well, if, if that's going to be 
the way things are going forward, that we're going to be inventing things. We're going to be a country of invention and production, but not necessarily manufacturing. And I don't grant that it is, but it has been that way for the past 20 years or so. And so from that standpoint, it, it, it does help to know who our trading partners are and uh, the kinds of, of systems under which that's being developed. Now, you're seeing a little bit of a backlash to that um, now, in, in, partly because we're in recessionary times and partly because we're able to look at one or two examples in a factory in China and say, well, I wouldn't want to live that way here, so maybe we should change things up. But I do think that if you are a country of immigrants and a country that, of, of exports, you're naturally going to look to other countries to see how they get things done and, and what, if anything, we could adapt it to our own system. But I think there's a difference between a personal level and what you do is the, for the good of the nation, the final decisions you make for the country as a whole. And the immigrants who come in will bring a lot of experiences in their own lives. But I think we have to also think at the other level, what's the, the big decisions that we're making as a nation and how can we make those best decisions? Oh, I think that's right. I think the healthcare debate was all about that. Can you make a, a long-term decision to try to have universal health care, knowing that like with Social Security and like with the civil rights, you might, it might cost you your job in order to um, make that change? But you talk to the people who made that vote, and they're very comfortable with the fact that they made it the way that they did. So I, I, I think taking why, the long view is, is why helpful. Are the, why are the costs going so high? Why, why are the costs so much higher in this country than they are, for example, in Japan? Probably a lack of wellness and prevention services. Look at what we do. We're fighting diabetes instead of promoting diet. And until that changes, you're going to have a lot of expensive diabetes. I have a question about uh, the limits of the initiative process, whether it ought to be limited. There's a vote going on today uh, to put a ban on gay marriage in another state constitution. Um, some people have said uh, there should be limits to how far the initiative process can go in terms of being able to infringe on people's civil rights. So I'd be curious to hear if any of you think, including Joe, if you think there ought to be a limit. And I also, uh, while Janice is here, I would love to hear uh, any updates you have on the European Citizen Initiative and let us know where that stands. The European Citizen Initiative, first of all, it's not an initiative in the California sense of an initiative. It's more like a super, it's more like a super petition. Because I told you the European Commission has sole right of initiative. What it is is if a million Europeans can agree, um, they can ask the European Commission to propose new legislation. And the European Commission can either say yes or no. But they have to do it publicly, and they have to provide a hearing. Where it stands right now, it officially entered into um, effect on, unfortunately, April 1st. It wasn't in uh, April fool's joke, but it really <laughs> April 1st. And about 12 initiatives um, have registered. And right now, the European Commission is examining them to see whether they're admissible. And they can, which means once it's admissible, then they can start collecting their million signatures. And the only reason they can reject them is if they're frivolous or they um, are not part of a treaty. It has to be something that's founded in a treaty. And there are some initiatives that are definitely probably going to be rejected as frivolous. For example, one was um, requiring Europeans to sing some song in Esperanto. You know that? <laughs> that will definitely get rejected. <laughs> but there are others that might be rejected on treaty grounds that can then be um, appealed by the European Court of Justice. For example, um, there's one on uh, keeping water private. Um, they're private. <laughs> 
other way around, making sure water is always public, that it's not privatized. Um, there's another one on freedom of the press. Um, and there's also a couple hot button ones on uh, gay marriage, making sure gay marriage is legal, and uh, banning abortion. So those are going to be really interesting to see now what the commission does, and if they, there are challenges in the European Court of Justice. And then they'll all have whatever's registered a whole year to collect their million signatures. And now we'll have to see if any of them are able to collect a million signatures, and then afterwards, how the European Commission reacts, if they actually are going to propose legislation or not. Um, right now, actually, the European Parliament and the Council can ask the Commission to propose legislation, and most of the time, the Commission does. So what you want to see is, if a million signatures, a million, signature, a million citizens ask them, are they going to do it as well? Are they going to be as respectful of citizens as they are of the Parliament and the Council? So that's where it stands right now. Into the question limits on the initiative process? Well, no, Ezra first. <laughs> no, I don't. I, 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 I they don't. haven't brought initiative and referendum to China as yet, I guess. No. Well, uh, <laughs> I'll let you people comment on the United States. Well, I remember when California Forward had that idea they were going to have a constitutional amendment uh, that was going to then have a constitutional convention, and then they were going to decide on what to put in it. And, and going back to our first questioner, um, I, would, I would answer the last questioner the same way, which is, I would love to ban initiatives, but then again, I don't trust what's happening in Sacramento. I would like to have a little extra veto power just in case. I'll give you an example. Why is it in California we can't even have banning of dual tracking where a bank can foreclose on your home even while you're paying it off? They put you on a dual track of foreclosure and uh, your repayment. That's ridiculous. I would love to have a ballot measure up to try to defeat the banks on that because it seems that they apparently own the legislature lock, stock, and barrel. Now, that's ridiculous. And I said, it's a Democrat. It's a Democratic legislature. But that's absurd. So, yeah, I sure want a ballot measure about that. I look at ballot measures and I say, um, you have to give me a reason. Um, you have to have failed in the legislative process first. In other words, so you have to have tried to go through the regular order. And then if some special interest or another has blocked progress, sure, take it to the people. So I think that there are absolutely good reasons to let the voters make a decision, but it also means that you have to have that in concert with um, looser, not more restrict, um, voting rules so that more people have an opportunity to vote. I don't know why we vote on Tuesday where we couldn't vote um, for a much longer period of time. You have to have a, a California Disclose Act that goes with that. And you have to make sure that you have election protections in place so that we know that every ballot count, cast is counted as cast. So I absolutely would want to be able to keep my veto power as a citizen over um, my legislature, which is not serving my interests if it's saying that a handful of bank lobbyists can buy up a handful of legislators on an issue and refuse what to me would be common sense actions on behalf of homeowners who are trying to be responsible citizens. That's just ridiculous. So that's the latest outrage um, that makes me want to be able to exercise my rights. But give me time, I'll come up with more. We can talk during the reception about that. And, uh, and a very brief answer since you asked me, a very, we need a much more flexible process. Uh, Deng Xiaoping believed in flexibility. Try it. If it works, <laughs> let it spread. Um, and, um, and so and a, one final happy thought from this conversation. Uh, um, you know, there's some people out there in this state who, who might note that our governor turned 74 last month. 
and might be past it. And I was uh, uh, taken to note in, in Ezra's book that in 1978, when Deng Xiaoping finally took power, um, he just shortly after his, uh, he turned 74. Um, so perhaps there's hope for big transformation in California <laughs> yet. Um, thank you very much for being here. Please spread the good word about Zocalo, and thank, please join me in thanking the panel.